So tonight is our Acharya Puja, it's an honouring of the Acharya, the Venerable Ajahn Chah, passed away, he'd been 102 today, so he's been gone for quite a while, physical presence, but the, the theme so often in these monasteries is that the qualities of Lumpur Chara becoming infused into the structure of the training, the way of life. Which is exactly the way the Buddha had it. So after I depart, after this body passes, then the Dhammavinya will be your guide. So very similarly, this is our uh, thing to remember, mm-hmm. the, the structure of the training situation is our teacher. Mm-hmm. Teacher isn't even the right word, it's our, it's our guide, a guiding presence. And it's a reciprocal, that is, if you, you keep attending to it, properly on every level, level of just duties and service, level of meditation, level of precepts and so forth, then that, uh, that becomes your atmosphere that you live in yeah. and it, it feeds back to you. These monasteries are, the idea in them is the very external form of the monastery represents a kind of a crystallization of the internal qualities of the training. A sense of spaciousness, a sense of simplicity, a sense in which you get that uh, the place is well attended, it's not neglected, it's not dusty, it's not cluttered. Mm -hmm. Things are given dutiful attention, but with the idea of clearing out what's not needed, intending properly what's left. You could say this is almost just this very sentence is how to meditate. <laughs> just clear out what you don't need and attend properly to what's what's important, what remains. The principle of samadhi. So in Pochar, spend a lot of time and energy in, in generating particular core what, call it, which is the repeated duties, standards, um, that any of the monasteries that um, were founded in his name, they carry through the same kind of processes and procedures. So wherever you went, there's slight differences, but you Basically, you knew what to do because you're in the same training space. You live in a training space, you live in a Dharma place. Where that happens to be on the planet is secondary because fundamentally you live in a, a Dharma place. And you transfer your identity and your uh, sense of affiliation to a Dharma place, what a nationality, so forth. It's kind of secondary. 
naturally adaptations in terms of culture and climate and so on. But fundamentally it's the same themes. Very important because with this uh, really purifying process of consciousness. So consciousness um, means the experience of being with something or being in something. Normally for the ordinary person this is very much in the world of sights and sounds and thoughts. They're feeling they're within it. It happens to them. They're surrounded by it. Sights, sounds, touches, tastes, fragrances, odours and thoughts. They're within that. That's their matrix. Um, Most of that is pretty random. It's whatever happens. Um, It's circumstantial. Sights, sounds, touches. And the mind gets very circumstantial. The thinking process is just basically bouncing off circumstances. Sight, sound, touch, taste, feeling. And this is the, say, the untrained uh, mind is fundamentally reading and orienting itself around sense consciousness. And um, this means that primary uh, orientation is around whether something is pleasant or unpleasant. Very fundamentally speaking, around the feeling, is it agreeable, like more of it, like less of it, uh, how to defend myself against the pieces that are unpleasant, how to orient towards pleasing the more comfortable, easy, agreeable, less friction, or indeed quite stimulating. And so different degrees of agreeable and disagreeable is the feedback loop that we're following with sense consciousness. Following the kind of feeling that gets triggered by that. And of course with that comes a sense of, well, if it's pleasant, can we store it so we can have it in reserve? (laughs) If it's unpleasant, can we build a wall against it to make sure it doesn't happen? So these are these uh, processes of hoarding, forms of greed, if you like, hoarding, storing up, defending, which gives rise to anxiety, threat, uh, violence, defending oneself against things. So it sets up a model whereby these uh, um, ethical um, contaminations have a lot of room to grow. doesn't mean everybody is doing that, but that's certainly, it's set up to trigger those kinds of grabbing, and defending, pushing away, and very much that energy and activity begins to generate a sense of being a separate entity within all this. So it's the, the particular responses that the mind makes, the end result of that is me separate entity within a world that's around me I have to deal with. Get something out of it, push something away, hold on, defend. That becomes the me, the separate entity. 
naturally that's very problematic because it's separate separate entities going to find itself always measuring against others certain possible threat fear anxiety distaste uh, craving and so forth starts there's room for that to grow as long as that self center remains intact there's room for these defilements to grow and the self center self is at the center there's room to look down on others there's room to exploit others there's room to well, the others as a creature human being earth separate from it you know, there's certainly a potential to exploit it violate it I just don't care for it because it doesn't matter to me and this sets up the um, called the three wrong uh, attitudes um, sensuality um, aversion and violence and cruelty and Buddha when he was a bodhisattva was contemplating these unskillful tendencies saying well my mind goes into that not for my welfare not for the welfare of others doesn't lead to nibbana instead it leads to a heightened sense of separate self not nibbanic but seeking defending wanting not wanting comparing contrasting and so forth leads to that this doesn't do my heart any good at all and you kind of kind of wonder well what on earth was he talking about because you can't imagine the Buddha to be as being a particularly violent person and going around chopping people up living a very um, you know austere life so he wasn't considered that greedy he wasn't that cruel because he wasn't torturing anybody but looking into just uh, you know even the beginnings of those trends which is a mooring to the sense realm if you moor yourself to the sense realm if you tether the chitta to the play of the senses you're setting up potential for I want more I want that I want that there's the beginning of sensuality because we see that sensuality becomes our abiding place sensuality becomes our abiding place therefore I want more of the agreeable the Buddha's noticing that just in that tendency to experience uh, tethering connection bondage to the sense realm and it's just not true <laughs> or anything else because you can't you can't you can't have it you can't hold it you can't have a sight sights just fly through your heart sounds impressions you can't have any of them they just keep fluttering stimulating the chitta you can't have them you don't belong to it and then you pass away the body passes away you don't even belong to a body you can't even hold that but it's a very ingrained habit and then the aversive 
tendency is to that which well, exploits things. Okay. Fights aggress the moving out in aggression. The moving out with an aggressive, forceful, brutal quality. Push things away, push things around. And cruelty, how does cruelty happen? How, do, how can it be that human beings can torture each other, slaughter each other, do the most things that make your stomach turn in terms of cruelty, you know, di- dismembering people and blinding people willfully, beating people up. How can this happen? Not just in one country, but everywhere. It's fundamental trained human nature. Why? How do we do that? How do we do it to each other? How do we do it to other creatures? How do we slaughter billions of creatures every year? Because at the point of that, we see them as other. The withdrawal, the removal of empathy. You don't slaughter somebody you see as the same as yourself. You don't torture someone you have a, an empathic relationship with. You just doesn't. You can't do it. That's why to, to in order to experience to do this kind of cruelty, uh, you have to not connect to the other person. And so this happens when people get captured. Then you know the guards don't communicate with them. Don't talk to them because you might end up feeling they're another human being. You want to keep that sense of separate. Yeah. And we see this in the way that even in, in armies and police forces, they're very different. You know, the people that are against are just objects, you don't communicate with them. You have armor, shielding, very different. Yeah. Because if we ever found out that the heat, just like me, this person has their joy and sorrow, just like me, they have their friends and family, just like me. They experience pain and sickness, just like me. Then it's impossible to, to do that. You know? So you have to separate this withdrawal of empathy. I don't care. You're just one of those. I don't care. You're not the same as me. I don't care. You're a, and you get name, nationality, or whatever it is. You know. Stereotype. And these are things. These are these are the considerably harmful roots, and they always lead to the sense of the isolated self who's trying to get on top of everything else. And, uh, and we can see this playing out in the world in general: political scene, geopolitics, social unrest. Always trying to get on top of somebody else. No sharing. Does this lead to Nibbana? No. And so this is the way when we are moored in the sense consciousness within that. These are the kind of potentials that become possible. Consciousness is the experience of being within something. So the role of the teacher is to make what you're in this fundamental theme, first of all, mutuality. Goodwill, sharing, virtue. 
I don't harm you because I won't want you to do that to me. I'd like to share with you because there's a feeling of warmth and empathy that arises. I'd like to help you because that diminishes the sense of separation, isolation. Helps to like to discuss things if we have problems, so that you know these tendencies to form make other people other than ourselves. We reduce them. Do this with dana, generosity, and of course, the highest kind of dana is generosity in terms of advice, teachings, sharing, so forth, and morality. And you do it so that the world that you live in, the consciousness that you live in, is not more to sensuality, it's more to Dhamma. We don't see things in whether, whether we don't look around to see what's agreeable or disagreeable. We look around to see what's skillful and unskillful. We don't look around to see what we can get, we look around to see what we can give. Yeah. We don't look around to see who's better and worse. We look around to see, oh, it looks like she's having a hard time. Can I help her? Looks like we look around with that eye of compassion to support each other. And then this is for other people's welfare, also for our own welfare, because the mind is changing its lineage to the Dhamma. And so this, this is what fundamentally teaching is about in terms of sila and in terms of samadhi because what occurs with this process is that over time the centre of your awareness is no longer so much a me but it's more like a, like a sensitivity you know, a certain ethical Achievement, a certain sensitive listening is the centre of your awareness. And how are things going? Rather, what do I want? What do people think of me? Am I better or worse? Just the centering in a certain sensitivity that's ethical, compassionate, and it's kind of sensing around what's happening. That's the that's the realm in which you're within. And you realise the centre of that is not a person, so much as a chitta, a heart, that has a quality of conscience and concern, generosity and sharing, harmlessness and restraint, self-effacement. Let me not be better. Let me be... It's it's irrelevant. It's 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 not a measurement. (laughs) there's no such thing as a high moral ground true moral ground is broad not high it just wants to increase and include more and more and more not get better and look down on but how to widen it to include all kinds of other human beings and other creatures too in that field of conscience and concern and the Buddha is said to be someone who had anukampa which means empathy a shivering, a sense of resonance for the welfare of beings 
all creatures. Right in the center of that. So establishing that center, and then with meditation you're establishing that central principle. Now it's starting to relate to the various immaterial phenomena of thoughts and memories and inclinations. No, that one's not necessary. That one's irrelevant. This is the one I want to resonate with. Beautiful, bright. That's the one I want to keep signaling and resonating through the mind, through this very volatile, dynamic, karma-saturated dimension, where all kinds of old habits, tendencies, proclivities, dispositions keep welling up, constantly challenging. You're going to get caught in them like the host of Mara. Are they going to get you or are you going to think, wait a minute, not necessary, not interested, enough, resonate with this. And this is the, the mind of a, an aspirant trained in this way. They want to understand what makes the problem of consciousness and establish a proper um, domain for consciousness dwelling. Let that formulate a more properly attuned awareness and then expand it, spread it, widen it. So there's no more restrictions left, no more edges to it, no more pulling back. This is a very profound transformation because naturally the realm of sense consciousness is in your face, isn't it, on one level. Uh, Most of us need a considerable amount of support to uh, refrain, to restrain sense consciousness. Then we establish places for that. And uh, of course, the uh, you know, the forest marks, the people who really felt that you want to. make every effort to establish that proper mode of behavior, mental behavior. The mental behavior, verbal behavior, physical behavior is the path. Now, we might think, well, yeah, that's obvious, isn't it? But certainly in many boys' countries, that's not necessarily deeply understood. People can study Buddhism, or Buddhism can be a culture. You know, certain days, holy days, culture, ritualized and studied. So it's still something that you you don't actually uh, 
you know, you don't live in it. You 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 go to it, or you you put you know you 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 think about it. And clearly, there's a lot to be learned in terms of the scriptures and texts. But we must always remember that we're looking at a book, and these texts, what are now texts, were actually the transcriptions of occasions that occurred. Those teachings arose when the Buddha or a disciple sat down and talked to people in real time. The situations, they're not so that you know, they're not abstractions. There's quite a distinction there. Because if you try to imagine a situation where someone who has practiced completely, done the work, completed their freedom, is there with their verbal energy, their bodily energy, their presence, as something that the power of their Dhamma world is something they invite you into it. So actually, you come out of your personal world into their world. Now this may sound eerie, but certainly one has had the privilege of being with Lumpur Cha and by no means the only one. You know, still there's several forest masters one has the occasion to be with. And when you're with them, you're in their realm. You can feel it, you know. Um, where you are on the planet doesn't really matter. There's a certain power, sounds crude, but a certain balang, which means a certain energy in their presence that holds you there. And what they're saying in the manner of address is not like reading a book, not at all. That's the beauty of a human transmission. It's in real time. It's in embodied time. It's not abstract. It's embodied. And something about the quality of the energy, the presence, the things that are said, the things that are not said, the body language, the way of looking, that you know, you know this is different. One can only speculate on the quality, what it must have been like to be with a Buddha. But, uh, you know, you read some of these um, texts of the occasions, you can pretty much see the effect. You know, people just totally gobsmacked or awe inspired. Pretty much something like that, certainly with Lumpur Cha. Huge presence, 
quite a, physically quite small, but huge presence. And when he came to Britain, he was Rupa Sumedho and another Bhikkhu Rajan Prabhakro, and they're both over six foot tall, quite large, American, big, well built. Rupa Charles probably not even shoulder height to them. But there's no doubt who was bigger. It wasn't a power bigness, it was just the amount of space and vibrancy around him. You know, it's very difficult to explain without seeing something, you know, spooky, but it was just something you could feel. You just kind of felt it would go down on your knees. And what am I doing here? Down on your knees. <laughs> you know, it's that, that kind of effect. Voice quite calm, gentle, rhythmic. No pushing, not power, not power in a negative quality, but power of a certain charismatic quality, but not seeking attraction, but something that had a tremendously soothing and steadying effect. And that was pretty much the norm. You know, everyone who was around him experienced something of that nature. This is just the way it is for this transformation of consciousness. From a personal centre to a Dhamma centre. The beauty of it is, if it's authentic, it's not a personal centre, it's a Dharma centre. A person, Lumpur Jaya is a person, I don't know, it could be this or that or this or that, it could be funny, it could be very earthy, it could be very stern, strict, silent, enigmatic, and disappear. And we're just not there at all. What happened to the person? It was kind of a, it was an add-on. <laughs> it was depending what was necessary or suitable. You kind of present, come up like this or that or this or that, you know, depending on what was necessary. Like a chameleon, you know, what what skin changes depending on on <laughs> what it's with. And this is the, the way of dharma. Transformation. Because in this training and practice, training of forest monk, person, is um, you have to live in relationship with your environment. That's that's step one. You can't go into the forest with your head full of ideas. Thinking about what you need, what you want, what's going to happen tomorrow, it doesn't work at all. You go into a forest, you open up. What's around? Wise up. Don't come in here with your demands and aggression. Come in here to live in relationship with your environment. Otherwise you're not going to last very long. 
as forest training. That's why they do it. And the environment is not no longer the social environment of we think about him or her, what they want. It's kind of all that social with all its tendencies to have manipulation and projections and so forth. And just simplifying it, simplifying it. So we're in the very primary relational field. The mind then is a very wide. I think this is important to, to recognize because so often we use a word like concentration. Most people imagine it means you're funneling your mind down to a narrow point. You can't do that in a forest. You've got to have it wide. But because you're not interested in sights and sounds as such, the breadth of your awareness is not distracted. It's open and sensitive. Open and sensitive on all levels. Behind you, above you, beneath you. Your body, signals, energies. Very wide, but it's extreme. at the same time, because it's so attentive, attentive, it's not full of inner clamour. It's not running around. It has to be quiet. And this is the principle of samadhi. It quietens down because you're attentive. Not because you're shutting it down. You're attentive to, to the sphere in which you're dwelling. And many of these people, like Dumpo Cha himself, spent years in these situations and recognize and feeling it's so valuable they're prepared to meet the challenges of hunger and rain and cold and loneliness and uh, threat. Uh, and certainly with Lumpo Chai, the determination was massive, prepared to even give up life, if necessary, if that's what happened. He often said, I don't think he was exaggerating, because he certainly walked it, if he's going to die, let it die. Malaria, okay, Wild animals, hunger, you know, you know. And it comes a sense of the Dhamma sphere, the Dhamma consciousness. That's something that's not bound up in time or place. It's a precious realm. It's the, it's the only place for liberation. And you can't, so you have to give everything for that and develop that kind of courage and, and sharp, strong focus. Focus on awareness. Not on the items that arise in consciousness, but on your awareness of it. Mm-hmm. Now transferring that to a more, you know, monastic situation, bear in mind that Bhutcha himself, like many of these other masters, went off. And then at a certain point felt, well okay, I'm prepared to share with other people. Mm. Out of I guess out of compassion, 
perhaps also just also to test himself. Okay, sit down. Get a tree. Sit down. Have your umbrella. Stay there. The villagers get to know what's going on. Who's he? Who's this monk? Impressive. Building a little platform to sit on. Maybe a kuti. Other people come round. Who's this? Who's this monk who lives in the forest? What's he got to say? Yeah, a few disciples. You want to stay here? You've got to live like me. Yeah. You go and live under a tree, and so on. So it builds like that. The uh, you know the the, uh, the teacher is the monastery. You know, forest teacher, master. That's the presence you cluster around as best you can. It's not like you've got a pre-existing building run by some trust or organisation that you just slot people in and out of. No, no, no. <laughs> Different model. You know, you have the master and you sit around. You find a place where you can sit around. It may not be that comfortable, but what are you here for? And so that's the pro- that was the kind of way the establishment of these places and uh, at that time in Thailand that was, that was possible it's probably the ending of that era certainly in Britain it's never been that way exactly because the monasteries you know they're not allowed to be free people they have to be in a place and it brings on certain all the management responsibilities and so forth. But um, Pochar certainly took that on, establishing a place and letting facilities grow and so on and so on and so on. And so then saying you have to take the wisdom you learn from the forest, you have to bring that into the social situation. So how are you doing that? Same kind of thing awareness, these skills of the uh, non-sensuality, uh, <coughs> harmlessness, empathy. And you start, those, are the, those are the essential heart skills, you bring them out and now you're bringing other people into that, those reference points. Build it around that. And of course, in this... Uh, Tradition, lineage, you have a fairly good um, evolved system called Vinaya, which the Buddha himself uh, cultivated, that lays down all kinds of guidelines and protocols that will help to keep the mind on track, keep the center on, pure, and keep the relationships clear, clean. Keep them clear and clean. And therefore, he said, with this, there is definitely the possibility for a huge transmission to occur. Because human beings naturally resonate with each other, naturally notice and are affected and model, exemplify, can encourage, can brutalize, but also can care. So we're incredibly potent 
for the good or for the bad of each other. So the Vinaya is there to make those human connections as valid, useful, and dumb-oriented as possible. And, you know, now of course we have books of Vinaya. You can study these books of Vinaya <laughs> and get your ideas in your head. You can decide who's better than who, who's purer than who, and find fault with everybody. <laughs> and get caught up in, you know, this, that, and the other. But you know, Vinaya was occasions, in context, in living occasions that occurred in the time of the Buddha. Whereas, maybe this isn't good because you're moving away from the, the true realm of, of you know, non-sensuality, non-violence, and uh, empathy. This is not proper. So gradually establishing protocols for the place of when people lose that central reference and start winging off and losing it, you know. No, don't do that then, 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 do this, encourage to do that then. And you sometimes you change it, moderate it as situations develop. So we're not looking at some kind of abstract code, but a history of the Buddha navigating a social domain from a place of purity and trying to set up guidelines for people who hadn't realized that would help them, support, create fences. Go there, you're going to get in trouble. (coughs) <coughs> and the Buddha, you know, developed this over a lifetime. And that, to me, the Vinaya is not just as something that's frozen in time, but an awareness and sensitivity, and a, 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 almost like an inner dialogue. Is this, am I coming from purity or not? I want to know. And there are other things that can check my heedlessness, my blurring, my haste, my impulsiveness. You know, my, oh, it doesn't matter. All those things that just blur. We don't, so we don't see and don't notice these corruptions. Because that's the main problem. It's not that we deliberately act in unskillful ways, but we don't even notice it. <laughs> Under the blur under the impulsiveness, under the haste, under the you know, carelessness. You know, Pocha only got that sense, that training in the Vinaya, he then looking at all the refinements of the tradition that's developed to make people much more attentive. They're no longer moral rules, their attention rules, their rules about paying more attention. They're not rules about you know ethical purity so much as just attentiveness, attentiveness. Yeah. So what you're saying, what you're doing, how you're moving your body, how you're looking after your dwelling place, how you're relating to other people. Don't be blurring, don't be casual, don't be abrupt, yeah. Be attentive. Okay, that's almost the primary rule. With Lumpur Cha, you were attentive. Because he'd jump on you if you weren't. 
<laughs> sometimes playfully and sometimes not very playfully. <laughs> you know? It's like the Buddha said he used the simile of the cow herd. Who knows how to poke the cow if it's getting, you know, give it a rat, poke it. If it's straying off, give it a little tap. And Buddha, uh, Ujjan Chah uses a similar metaphor. He said, but he was a bit stern. He said, get a stick and whack your buffalo. If your buffalo is straying, give it a whack with a stick. <laughs> and so this would be around sensuality, for example. So you're getting lost in your food, lost in your arms bowl. Give it a whack, push the bowl away. And you talk like that. So you find yourself getting totally, you know, scrambling with your food, just push your bowl away until you've calmed down. Give it a whack, wrap it on the knuckles, and it comes back. What are you doing? So Lumpur Chao is someone who, who had that, uh, you know, you were with him. If you're in the monastery, there, he was, you know, you knew you were with him. Because he'd be walking around supervising everything, talking to people. And he had such a quality of uh, personal authenticity, certainly, that and authority because well, you weren't a Wampur poem because you liked the decor you weren't a Wampur poem because you liked the scenery or the food <laughs> you're only there because of him and he knew it and you knew it and he knew you knew it <laughs> and you knew he knew <laughs> and so <laughs> so <laughs> tremendous power and somebody's you know, one of the monks was saying, he said, you know, he could, he'd be sitting there at the tea time break, would be one, you know, eventually he got to have a cup of hot, hot drink once a day or something, or an and and you sit back and you have this, you know, cup of cocoa or something like that, really pleasant, and you think, well, that's really nice, and you put your dog down, oh, I like another one of those, and then this kind of <coughs> cough, you think, oh, oh, you put the cup down and run out, clean up, get out. <laughs> You can always feel your mind straying off into, oh, this would be rather nice, have another one of those. And then it's, little poor child's cough would come down the line, you'd, oops, push your cup down, <laughs> bow, take your cup out, wash it up, get back to your cootie and meditate. <laughs> he said he could silence a whole monastery just with one cough, down a loudspeaker. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, you know, there you were. Um, uh, so that was part of it. Like, really, be to don't let the mind slide. These are vast, you know, immoral defects. It's just you're being inattentive. You're tethering yourself to the sense world again. Stop it. Stop it. You're not here for that. So that's the aim, really. Teacher is not a speaker, not one someone who presents interesting lectures. The teacher is a trainer who gives you the poke, the shadow of the whip. They say you get it. You kind of, you know, 
and also the one who feeds you. <clears throat> Giving you warmth and encouragement, humour, in it together, you know, working alongside, being part of the group, in it, you know, with it. Not trying to get you to do anything you hadn't done himself. And a lot of compassion. And he's saying, particularly make a point, one of his ruttas, his personal duties was to go visit the sick monks in hospital. So you know, we go down to Ubon Hospital, and the sick monks, we've got malaria or typhoid or something like that, and it's really miserable. This place you're kind of dement, delirious, and uh, you know, some fever, another scrub fever, scrub typhus, or your broken leg, or something. And then poor child come in and just kind of turn on this amazing warmth and radiance. And how are you doing? Bear up. And and. Um, uh, the monks are saying, you know, his knees were completely wrecked because he had, he had a motorbike accident when he was a young man, so his knees weren't great. And then sitting on the concrete floor at Wapapong, his knees, you know, really miserable. He had to go in the hospital for his knees. And he said, oh, my knees, it shouldn't even be like this. I should be able to meditate. It's not right. It shouldn't be this way. And Paul said to him, if it shouldn't be this way, it wouldn't be this way. It is this way. <laughs> Don't let your mind go into those whinging self-pity. You know, Put it back. Deal with it. This is pain. Everybody gets pain. Not just you. Make sure the body is this. Yeah, it breaks. It's not yours. It's not a statement of yourself. It's the nature of the body. Rise up. Don't get caught into self-pity with it. And then he would offer uh, companionship and goodwill. So there was different ways of playing that to you know, poke, remind, entice, but, but even more fundamentally, well. You know, particularly with Lumpo Chath, above all, was the one who developed community. Of all the forest teachers. I mean, the forest teachers, you go to Kuti, very few communal activities at all. Maybe come for the meal, go Bindabad, and then back. It might be a Dhamma talk once a fortnight, come for that, go back. Lumpo a lot of community. Because uh, sensing this uh, quality of what I call the empathy quality, or the quality that moves against uh, tendency for cruelty, which is not caring indifference to others. Indifference. Yeah. And then from that indifference, we no longer, heart no longer really opens to its fullness. In community. Main thing is can you orient around community. Both uh, in, ma- in many ways. Fundamentally, there's the ethical sense. We're all 
you know, looking around, everybody's following these particular standards. That strengthens my standards because I'm seeing it in this direction, that direction, this direction, that direction. I mean, right, it's holding me together. Group practice, you know, uh, ethical sense, um, protocol sense, community. Requisites come in, it's for the community. Share it out. Mm-hmm. And poor Charles Kuti, nothing in it. Yeah. Little shrine, image of Ajahn Buddha Dasa, Buddha image, mosquito net, nothing, nothing else. Row, bowl, everything coming, give it away. Community, community, community. Send it off to that monastery, they're hard up, give them, give it to them. Fundamental sense of dana, community consciousness, sharing, um, working together, cooperation. Uh, major training, because uh, of course we might very well think, particularly in forest people, other people are busy, hassle, jangle, social issues, you know, uh, too, too, too complicated. But uh, Bo Chaz feeling as well, meet it, train it, develop it. It doesn't have to be complicated. <laughs> yeah. Because you're not really orienting around you like or attracted, not attracted, you're orienting around ethics, virtue, compassion, cooperation. Just get on with each other. Get on with each other, go arms around with each other, pour water together, work together, sweep together, chant together. I know he's got a horrible voice, but that's not what you're here for. You're not here for a choir. Just be with it, it's okay. <laughs> you know, because you're not here for the sights and sounds, you're here to develop a mind that can extend and doesn't get agitated about sights and sounds, either negative or positive, just sound arises, let it pass through. Then the unrestricted awareness, instead of meeting this person feeling said, I don't like him, or I feel threatened by that one, or I really want to be with that one, or that one's nobody, doesn't really matter, no. Those marks that your mind has created yeah, those are the ones you want to overcome. Acknowledge them, just relax. You know, those are the marks, subtle marks we might not even really notice. Subtle marks that are limiting you, tethering your awareness to a, a, a social sphere that may be okay, but it's not Nibbana. Bhana is the unrestricted consciousness. Yeah. So, establish what okay, is everybody is treated with respect and we help and we cooperate and deal with each other's you know, perceptions of each other, threatened, intimidated, he's weird, she's wacky, he doesn't turn up, just don't do that, you know, don't get lost in it. Use the protocol. 
and <clears throat> which are a lot of relational protocols. Yeah. Of course, Thai society in general has a lot of relational protocols that we don't have or notice, particularly around body language, giving each other physical space so you're not cramming in, jamming up against somebody, not rushing past somebody. There's always a softness in terms of the way you move past each other. Certain acknowledgement, you know, a softening of the body rather than just stomping in, making oneself quiet when one moves around, so you know, just crashing in. Because we're aware of the shared experience. You know, if I'm crashing around, somebody hears it. And what does that do? So quieting the body, quieting the gestures. And uh, training oneself in this way. So you could be in a monastery with 80 other people. It's quiet. You just speak loud enough for the, per- well, the person you're talking to to hear. It doesn't go everywhere. Make little noise, just enough. Then you can be with 80 people. It's quiet. And your mind is quiet if you're not forming people in this separate way. As, you know, focusing on physical characteristics or perceptions. People, humans. Possibility of Dhamma practice that we share together. Oh. Right? And when there's no edges, no marks limiting your awareness, what happens to the center of it? It's no longer me (laughs) manipulating and wangling and fabricating and planning. It becomes open, empty. Empty of self. And this is the meditation, training, and wisdom. So, certainly, Wat Pa Pong, you could have you know, all night sittings and, uh, every week uh, with 50, 60 other people. 30, 20. And it's not like, oh, she fidgets, he's fidgeting, he annoys me. Well, he doesn't annoy you. You create annoyance (laughs) out of this person. Because your mind focuses on the sound, on what it should be. Don't do that. You'll hear the sound. You're not here to, to decide on sound. Let sound do what sound does. Your job is to have an attention that doesn't snag on sound. It doesn't have to. You can feel your chitter contract around what you don't like. There's your practice, contracting around what you don't like. Notice, can you recognize what you don't like it's just your mind contracting around something. If you could relax and let it be, it wouldn't bother you. 
though, you know. Thailand is actually is quite noisy, but it's not so much a lot of creatures in the in the forest, loud insects whirring and tweeting, monkeys howling, birds crashing through the canopy. And now of course uh, the cities have grown so you can often hear music, local town or traffic noises. Mm. Mm. Imagine Marbourg's monastery, jungle chickens. These chickens running around squawking. Christ, don't bother with them. Don't 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 let your mind go to them. It's just they're just chickens. They're not a problem, it's your defilements are the problem. They're running out fighting with chickens. <laughs> what a stupid thing to do. <laughs> chickens are chickens. It's, you know, why why do you want to run around and fight with chickens for when you could be sitting here practicing Dharma instead? <laughs> And so, you know, you, the, the situation, the teacher is there to just keep reminding and in the sense of both of being tapped away from getting stuck and also encouraged to open through what one finds irritating, not the way you like it, disappointing. You know, let those phenomena of aversion and disgruntledness and shouldn't be this way. Let them arise within awareness, but get your awareness to expand over that. Then they will just run through you like ripples in water, like running your finger through water. The water doesn't mind. The finger passes through it, the water ripples and it's gone. Because you just let it pass through. And uh, that's, that's practice. Mm. Practice is not really, you know. Lumpur Chah is the only one who knew how to practice, or the only place you could practice, but he had the power to stop you being so careless and heedless and selfish. To cooperate. situation of a water hauling thing when you have to haul water out of a well they could have had a pump they thought it's better practice to do it by hand because then you've got to cooperate yeah. and you have a pole so one end of the pole is on one person's shoulder does the other person's shoulder and you put the bucket hangs on the pole you try and walk through a forest two of you together with the uneven path without spilling the water. You know, he's going too fast and you know, he's taller than you are, so his shoulders up there, your shoulders down here. Yeah? <laughs> You've got to, it's not fair. <laughs> it's absolutely not fair. And it could be done easier without this hassle. Just switch a pump on instead and say, no, no, that's better, that's not practice. Better to practice. You know, with these potentials to, and then open your awareness through that and learn. You can learn. And uh, you can learn. 
cold. Could get very cold at Wat Pong, to northeast Thailand. And just wrap up. No, nothing to wrap up in. Bear with it. Feel the unpleasant feeling. And generally you find with these things like hunger and tiredness and discomfort, the feeling arises and then first of all the mind is kind of you know, you know, wriggling, trying to, then it's starting to feel overwhelmed and oppressed and then fed up and miserable. <laughs> you can really go down a long way. But then the motto at Wat Pong was torn, which means just patiently endure, and if you keep with it, what tends to happen after a while, depending just how stubborn your mind is, something eventually just <laughs> lets go, <laughs> and you find, you know, it's just stuff out there, it's no longer, you know, eating you up. And uh, but it takes a situation, and a training, and a commitment, and a teacher, to you know, create that important mechanism to do that. And uh, poor Charles was prepared to do it. And clearly, it's not the way you go. If you don't do that, if you want to make friends with people, you let them do what they want. But he didn't mind. People liked him, didn't like him. More practice. Timing. Another thing that people often find themselves losing uh, awareness with, sense of time. Uh, minds easily move on to, well, what next? Okay, let's go to the next. What's the next? Tomorrow? Next? What time's that happening? Three o'clock? Four o'clock? Next? And then, and then, and by next week it will be this, won't it? Yeah. I want it nicely organised. What's happening in July? It's this, isn't it? And, and poor child wouldn't wouldn't tolerate that. So mostly he didn't really know what was going on. Exactly. He just knew today and you look around. What's the group doing? Okay. There's a generally a fairly normal standard routine. You can kind of sweeping, bin the barn, robes and meal. But you never know when he might suddenly whip a talk out. You sit there, yeah. and you think, okay, he gives a talk at this time, you get used to it, and it stops. You think you start to fill in the gaps with your expectation, and it's pulled away. So, yeah. and uh, I remember a couple of times when in Britain, when uh, <laughs> I noticed this happening. One time we went out to a, a dana, and it was quite. Uh, Hampstead Buddhist Vihara was not. Uh, well, I'll put it this way: the Anagarikas, one was an accountant, one was a carpenter, and one was a street artist. So none of them were actually into cooking. <laughs> so <laughs> the food was, it was edible. Great. And there was one particular dish called the perpetual curry, 
which meant they just throw some onions and potatoes and carrots in a pot and boil it up and throw some curry powder in it. And whatever's left over, they keep that. The next day, they throw some more potatoes and more curry powder and water and onions in it. So it just went on. It never stopped. It's called the perpetual curry. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I think when Lumpur Char came, then, oh, yeah, Thai people are coming now because Lumpur Char's here. So you get Thai food coming. Oh, you know, and of course, Thai people offering food, they really make something out of it. So it brightens up. And uh, we got invited out to a dana, an English woman was offering a meal. She went out and uh, she had a whole heap of food. And they just, you know, being English, she wasn't so, she liked to offer a plate at a time. So she'd offer, you know, it's this, that, and the other. And the poor child take what he needed and go down the line. And then she paused. There was a whole lot of other food, like pies, apple pies, and things like that, you know, which were, she thought were desserts, and she thought she'd offer them later. So we're looking at that, okay, dessert's coming up. So I won't take too much of the savouries because there's that really nice looking apple pie and a cake over there that's coming down the line, leave some room for that. So you kind of only have half a meal because you're waiting for the pies. And the poor child said, we have enough, thanks. You can take the rest of the food away. (laughs) So there you go. Yeah, most any situation he could find a way of making, <laughs> doing a number on you with it, turning it around. <laughs> you know, the occasion when he was at the, the Buddhist Society, they all, they wanted to invite him to a Wesak to Guru um, come to their Wesak, so they asked. Imagine Samedo, Imagine Samedo to Lumpur Buddhist Society of Britain, I think, you know, major Buddhist society, oldest Buddhist society, they invite you to the West Act. Would you like to come? Maybe or maybe not. Okay, right. The next day, I wonder if they just want to know if you, you come because they could put it on their brochure. Maybe I'll come, but then maybe I won't. Don't know about now. So that went on till the very day when it was due to happen. And I think, well, imagine somebody else thinking, well, well, I'll go. You know, they're sending, they're sending a car to pick him up, so I'll, I'll go. He's not coming. We don't know if he's coming or not. I said, is he coming? Is he not coming? So we don't know. <laughs> but he's coming. He says he doesn't know yet. Because the car isn't here, so how can he be going anywhere? Because there's no car. So it hasn't arrived yet. The car arrives, and he well, so I just made it goes to get in the front seat, and the poor child comes down and says, I'm going. <laughs> so planning you know, wasn't really a, a, a viable option. And so you have to let go of time, you have to let go of independence you have to let go of you know finding your own you have to let go of being with you know avoiding discomfort you have to let go of grabbing hold of more pleasure 
and this disengagement from the world of space and time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. When the English Sangha Trust invited the to Britain, George Sharp to see Ajahn Shah. George Sharp's chairman of the English Sangha Trust, and George Shah had him you know, sitting at the bottom of the line, eating out of an old bowl, and said, Well, yeah, maybe I could send you somebody, maybe I'll send that. That's Sumedho. He's no use anyway, we'll throw him up there. Uh, and then uh, two, Ajahn <laughs> Viridamo, Canadian, and Ajahn Nando, Nando, they were, Nando was an American, they were in North America visiting their, their family. One was two buses, one was three buses. Got, went from Thailand to visit their family, got the return ticket back, got the message, don't go back to Thailand, go to England. What? So, <laughs> so they found themselves in London because you're not you're not here to be in the world of space and time. You're here to be in the Dhamma community, and that's independent of that. Where you go in it physically is small differences, but really you're in the same place should be in the same place. Wherever you go, you should be in the same place. If you're in somewhere different, something's going wrong. Yeah. Wherever you are, you should be in the same place. Whatever time of day it is, it's the same time. Don't get deluded. The world of space and time is not going to Nibbana. Wherever you are, you're in the same place. What makes it different? If you find something's making it different, be careful of that. Watch out for that. Yeah. If you have times that when you're on duty and off duty, be careful of that. Oh, well, nobody's around. I'll keep. No. Be there all the time. As if the teacher's sitting right next to you. Teacher who searches for your welfare. Keeps you alert. Offers you compassion. Wants to support you. There's where you want to be. Doesn't matter what the clock says or the geography is. Be there where awareness is unrestricted by sensuality, by the constructions of the mind. This is for your welfare and benefit. So though poor Charles passed away physically, yeah. You know, uh, Aim and intention, and uh, is to you know keep bearing these, these models in mind. Obviously, different situations, different climate, different situations, and yet to really keep that flavour dwelling in the Dhamma, time, place, situations, sense objects. Those are things we just play with and juggle with. Don't let them get on top. Wherever you are, you're in the same place. Wherever you're with, you're in the same place. Whatever time of day it is, be in the same place. And then, this is the place that doesn't come and go. This is the place that doesn't let you down. This is the place where suffering ends. And that's uh, 
and put Charles' message.